I reluctantly went and had a coronary calcium score and from that I found that I was in the top echelons for those that were going to have a heart attack. I was still in denial, I said it's not possible. 40 years I've been teaching people about health and fitness. That sent me on another journey. I thought, well, maybe the things that I've been telling people over all those years, there were other outliers that we needed to consider. I trained with my vacuum cleaner. And they go, you with your what? I said, yeah, what, I'll be nowhere without um, Dyson vacuum cleaners because basically what I do is I just spend time doing what I call met minutes. So I did one particular trek where I looked at every day required four times the resting energy for every minute. And I did it for 360 minutes. So I worked out what my energy expenditure would be. That I cut that by half and then I found everything around the house and just equated that with the same number of minutes. We've outsourced everything we do in the home. We have people come and clean our house. We do online shopping. We have someone to do our lawns. We take a car down to be washed. Everyone's doing something for us. We've outsourced our life. Don't get me wrong, I love the gym. I love high intensity exercise. I love the people that work. I think they're a fantastic job. But our lifestyles have changed so much that that's just not enough anymore. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Today's podcast is my former university lecturer, my former employer at the Fitness Institute of Australia, my mentor in exercise physiology, my friend and now co-collaborator, Dr. Paul Batman. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Andrew. So much to live up to. Yeah, so much. Well, look, let's go back. Uh, when I was a 17-year-old skinny, I actually had big hair then, if you remember, <laughs> university student. You were my lecturer at uh, Oatley Campus, New South Wales University. That's right. It just seems like yesterday, Andrew. Yeah, well, I wish it was, Paul. <laughs> I'm going to start this interview by saying if we were talking 15 or 20 years ago in relation to physical fitness, and, and you're a humble man, but you are recognised as one of the world's leading educators in exercise physiology programming. I, I know people around the world have got their anatomy colouring book. It's, it's, I think it's been ripped off in China 15 times, you tell me. What would have been different 15 years ago if I said, so what do we need to focus on to get fit? You would have said? Uh, things have changed dramatically, Andrew. Uh, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I would have said probably 30 to 60 minutes, moderate to vigorous exercise, 60 to 85%, a uh, variety of different modes, and you would probably live forever. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward 15, 20 15, years. 20 years later, my attitude's changed dramatically. Uh, I don't necessarily think now that that's the answer to everyone's journey into health and fitness. I think for some it works really well. Uh, it certainly gives you an opportunity to improve your cardiovascular health and improve the quality of life. But the thing I find is that there's a significant number of people out there in the community that will never do that type of exercise. And I guess from my own experience, I've also found that I'm now more a believer in multiple bouts of duration type activity throughout the day rather than a 30 to 60 minute block because essentially that's 148th of your day and it's still a whole lot of time where people aren't doing any activity. So I think mm. we need to be more active throughout the day, not just in one exercise or fitness block. So the guy who has really helped the career of thousands of exercise physiologists in Australia and around the world, you've written books and you've sold tens of thousands of <laughs> copies on exercise programming. You've done a flip and, and, and now it's not about the high intensity exercise go hard. It's about moving and getting off your backside. So I, I know the story. Uh, we wrote a blog together and the blog title was Holy Atherosclerosis Batman, You've got heart disease. That's it, Andrew. 
We did. Yeah, I had a bit of a scare a few years ago. My background was that I spent probably 45 years training hard most days of the week. Not that I was very good at anything. It's just that in my early days, I was told that the more you did, the healthier and fitter you'd become. And so I tried to live that mantra throughout my life. Uh, a little while ago, I was training for a trek, uh, fell over and hurt my back, had a back operation. And when I was there, the surgeon said I needed to go to a cardiologist. Now, I couldn't believe what he told me. Cardiologist, uh, look, I'm, I'm Batman, <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, this is my whole point. I mean, I'm indestructible. I'm a trekker. There's nothing wrong with me. And so I said, no, there's not possible. It's uh, I've had uh, left ventricular hypertrophy when I was younger, but that was, of course, a training. So I didn't really give it much thought until my wife suggested I needed to go and take it to another step, which I did. I reluctantly went and had a coronary calcium score and from that I found that I had a really high level of calcium within my body which indicated that I was in the top echelons for those that were going to have a heart attack. I was still in denial. I said it's not possible. 40 years I've been teaching people about health and fitness. Because people who have heart attacks are sedentary people, people who smoke cigarettes and have fast food all their life. Drink heaps. Yeah. It's, It's not me. I don't have any of those risk factors. My father did pass away early admittedly but and that obviously had some bearing on it but the reality is that I had no other risk factors and given that I'd lived this life, the healthy life all that time, I was reluctant to even consider that there was anything wrong with my heart. But as it was, I had an angiogram and it was found that I did have a coronary artery that was 90% blocked. Uh, To make it worse, I'd just come back from walking the Kokoda Trek with a 90% blocked artery, which sort of did bother me a little. And then obviously I had a stent put in and that sent me on another journey. I thought, well, maybe the things that I've been telling people over all those years there were other outliers that we needed to consider and that's where I've spent the last four or five years sort of researching what is it that I did wrong so that I can tell people maybe there's other things that we need to consider now, not just the high intensity type activity that sometimes we're only offered. And credit to you, because I think a lot of people, especially men in your situation would have gone, you know, I've built a career, um, it's been good. You know, Fitness Institute of Australia, you built up one of the biggest education bodies in Australia to train, like how many thousands of fitness instructors have gone yeah. through? Oh, we probably had over 30,000. 30, so did you have any moments where you went, oh, I'll just I'll keep this quiet, you know, <laughs> I just, I'll retire gracefully. And did you have that and think, oh, people are going to look through me and think yeah. I've been teaching the wrong stuff? Or what, what process went through yeah, your head? I, I must admit, I didn't really think like that. I thought once I found this information that there was another story there that needed to be told. And while I may have lost some credibility in the things that I've said over those years, I guess everything is evolving. You know, we mm. only can say what we know and research what we can according to the instrumentation and the information that's available to us. And as we find out more about things, I think it's our duty to let people know that, well, it's a challenging belief thing. We thought this 20 or 30 years ago, uh, now we don't think quite the same and there are other factors that we need to consider. And the statistics on the amount of uh, Australians and people around the globe who have a fitness membership we're going to get to, they're appalling. The amount of people that don't exercise mm-hmm. and are sedentary, the difference between sedentary and active. Yeah. But before I do that, I've got to ask you about endothelial lines. <laughs> <laughs> now, and there'll be people listening to this going, oh God, we've got two exercise physiologists. You know, I'm going to listen to this before I go to bed if I can't sleep. But yeah. I do want to dig into some of the So can you talk to me about uh, the endothelial lines and what what happens with a really fit heart and losing that elasticity? sure. Well, some of the things that I found uh, in my journey, first of all, when I found out that I did have heart disease, you know, it did blow me away. And I did go into sort of a a disbelief period for a long time. Uh, Then I started looking at, well, what could have caused it? And the thing that I think 
contributed to my problem. Admittedly, there may have been some genetics, but you know, from the famous Danish studies on twins, they suggest mm. that genetics is 25% and 75% is environment. So I looked at my environment. I can't do much about the genetics. And in that environment, I found that, yeah, I did exercise hard for a long time. I didn't put a lot of credibility into recovery. Uh, I came from the the era where you just worked as hard as you possibly could and everything else would fall into its place. And in fact, I did have a mentor once that said that if you run one marathon a year, you'll never have a heart attack. Well, that kind of didn't work for me either. So what I did find is that I came across oxidative stress, which is where the mitochondria itself consumes oxygen during normal forms of exercise. I love it when you talk dirty. <laughs> Keep going. Look, mate, there are three things I love in life, my family, my car and mitochondria. Oh, I love it, love it. And the mitochondria, I found that once they're excessively exercise and they consume more oxygen the oxygen itself becomes toxic and as it becomes toxic it produces too many free radicals or reactive oxygen species that can't be sopped up by the immune system and as such when this occurs it creates a mild inflammation throughout the body and we now know that a lot of cardiovascular disease particularly atherosclerosis has to do with increased uh, inflammation an increase in inflammation, in my case, I think, had an effect on the endothelial lining or the internal lining of my arteries. And the problem associated with oxidative stress, in my case, I think involved nitric oxide, which is important for the vasodilation and the vasoconstriction of the artery. So our blood pressure is reduced if the artery can you know, increase in size and then decrease and it acts as a pump. And in my case, I feel that nitric oxide, because of oxidative stress, was um, significantly inhibited. What my arteries then did is they weren't able to contract and release as much as they were. My immune system then, because they saw that inflammation was activated and actually reinforced the arteries and in that way caused some hardening of the artery itself. So the endothelial lining of the artery itself is really the site where a lot of these conditions do cut to start. And I'm fairly sure now that it's because of this low-grade inflammation that's been within my body probably mm. for the last 40 years. But it, it, it does my head in when we first had this conversation because you think if someone exercises, they've got a high VO2 max, they've got a good anaerobic threshold so you can train at a high percentage, you have a really strong heart. But in, in, in a lot of cases, right, we're seeing people who've got an amazing heart, but the plumbing that goes into it and stuff that you know, you've got leaking pipes coming into this big four ventricle chamber yeah. when you hear about the widow maker is this aligned with that as well not really oh the widow maker is basically to do the electrical activity within the heart itself and there are a number of people that i've known over the years that particularly of my era uh, contemporaries who have had atrial fibrillation premature ventricular contractions or pvcs they have irritable foci within the heart so the electrical activity itself can be interrupted if the heart rate is excessive for a long period of time, no question about it. And we often see it in elite athletes today. Tour de France cyclists. Tour de France cyclists, you see. Yeah, a lot of triathletes that mm. have exercised, particularly in the old days of triathlon when they worked a lot harder. That it, I mean, not to say they don't now, but there was an excessive amount of work that was done over those years. And I think the old athletes of years gone by are probably now – finding out they have heart conditions because they did train too hard with not enough recovery. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, so I know you've got a, a number of mates that you ran with for years who've had heart problems. Yeah. 
I think a lot of my, my cycling mates, some of the mammals, um, now, one thing is a lot of them are exercising a lot, but they've still got a gut and you know, we'll get into the right programming, high intensity, doing weights as well. But I think for a lot of them, they're doing themselves damage, right? If you're not going to go to the next Olympics, if you're doing, we've had this chat, above 150 to 200 kilometres on the bike at an intense level or around, what, 50 to 70 kilometres uh, a week running, you're doing yourself potentially irreversible damage, whereas you think you're doing yourself good. It's, mm. uh, it's a different mindset, isn't it? Well, I think so, Andrew, and I think there's a tipping point now. There's been a fair bit of research out there, and I look at um, physio- exercise physiologists like Dr. Stephen Blair or the American College of Sports Medicine even, and they're now saying that probably 50K is enough for running. You don't need to go much beyond that. If you're walking, probably no more than 80K, which is still quite a bit. Uh, but the intensity is an interesting one because they talk in METs, which is – you know, one med is equivalent to 3.5 mils of oxygen, which is at a resting level. So if you exercise at six meds, you're exercising six times what you would at rest. Now, I, that just rolls off the tongue, <laughs> and I, I, I get what you're talking about. Let's just, just wind back a little bit. Yeah, okay. So just explain to me METs, or for someone listening to this, in a really simple term, what is a METs? Because we're, we're going to talk a lot more about this. Yeah. Well, the concept of a MET, I guess, goes back to how much oxygen is required for our cells to perform their normal functioning. So for a cell to do its thing, it needs one. Met basically, right. and it's the minimum amount of oxygen that can burn the minimum amount of fuel that can release the minimum amount of energy to create the minimum amount of energy for the cell to do its job. So throughout the body, we need 3.5 mils of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute, in other words, to burn enough fuel to release enough energy for our cells to perform their normal function. So we've got someone listening to this who weighs 80 kilograms. Quick pop quiz on maths. (laughs) (laughs) 80 times 3.5, is that right? We're talking... Well, yeah, that's 3.5 mils per kilogram. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So basically, that's what you need at rest. And resting is obviously in a seated position. You and I, you and I now sitting here are probably doing about one met, 1.5 mets. We're in a seated position. We're not doing too much. Uh, and eventually what will happen is that you know our systems will all shut down. So we only need a minimum amount of oxygen. We only burn a minimum amount of fuel. We only need a minimum amount of energy for our cells to do a minimum amount of work. But when we exercise, that escalates. So if we, we were walking on a treadmill at five kilometres an hour, we would exercise at four times what we're doing now, or four times, 4.5 times, which would be 4.5 mets. Got it. Okay. So the tipping point now is about 10 mets. So if we do a high-intensity class and we're exceeding 10 mets, then anything above that, or nine mets, is, is really not adding to what we're trying to do. And realistically, we only need to do that for maybe 20 to 30 minutes max. But we can only do it three to four times a week. We can't do it every day because we do need significant recovery Mm. because the more intense activity we do, the greater recovery we require to get the benefit from the exercise. The paradox I'm going to throw to you, there's some people listening to this who get a lot of recovery. (laughs) 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 It's all they do, too much. Uh, There's some people that listen to this who are going too intense. We've got to find a balance somewhere in between. Um, The stats you gave me earlier uh, before we started recording today, 17.4% of Australians have a gym membership. 50% of Australians are inactive. What's going wrong with the message, whether it's at a high intensity level or low intensity? uh, Because we're really talking extremes with the people that are probably doing too much. So to to the average person listening to this, what's going wrong with the message, whether it's from the fitness industry, from the government and, and, and knowing you and I, we could talk about hours on this as well. <laughs> but if you could summarise, what's, what's going wrong? Oh, I think we're, we're taking it wrongly. I think from 1980 to now, we've lost about 150 to maybe 400 uh, calories just in energy alone because our lifestyles have changed. 
uh, we've become more sedentary and inactive because the difference between the two than ever before. So what's happened is that I think we in fitness have decided that if we're going to assume the role of making people more active, we're substituting 30 to 60 minutes of activity three to four, maybe five times a week for things that have been taken out of our lives uh, that are quite different. Like nowadays, Jim mows our lawn, uh, the pampered yeah. pooch, or you're telling me is it mad dogs and Englishmen, Englishmen. <laughs> walk along with six really fit-looking dogs. And, yeah, and a fit-looking lady doing it. fit-looking lady doing it, yeah, who's getting a, all of her met. Yeah. And then every their owners are at home what eating cakes and yeah. Yeah, watching Jim mow the lawn. We're crazy, right? Crazy. Yeah, it is, yeah. We've outsourced our life, basically. I mean, we don't even have to go to the shops anymore. We do everything online. The banks have stopped us from standing in line at the uh, at the branches, and of course the branches have closed. So we do basically everything online. Coffee. We've outsourced our whole life. Yeah, order, like coffee, Uber Eats, everything's it's, it's fast, it's convenient. Yeah. So we're not moving. We're not moving at all, and that's the biggest problem. Is that I personally think that there are four areas that need to be looked at, and how life has changed considerably. And one is in the home. We've outsourced everything we do in the home. We have people come and clean our house. We do online shopping. We have someone to do our lawns. We take a car down to be uh, washed. We, we buy apartments when we downsize because we have concierge services and someone cleans your pool. Exactly. Everyone's doing something for us. We've outsourced our life. At work, it's the same thing. We sit all day. Uh, in transport, we do the same thing. How many times have you been on a train thinking, oh, it's so good, I can stand up today? <laughs> you know, all we do is we, we get cranky because we can't find a seat. Yeah. It really should be the opposite. And our leisure time is the same. You know, People don't realise that if they go and watch their child play football or netball, just by virtue of them standing for the duration of that game can have a dramatic effect on their health and fitness and sitting watching it. Funny you should say that because I was at Archie's Soccer and we haven't had this chat. I was there on Saturday, just gone by, and one of the dads is there and he's a large guy, great bloke, and he's sitting down on his chair and he's got his Gatorade and mm-hmm. he knows that I do a bit of fitness and he said, oh, I should have a chat to you. I said, oh, yeah, mate, I'm here most Saturdays with Archie we'll have a chat and then the, the kids were having a break and uh, I said I'm just going to take the dog for a walk and he, he came with me and he said what should I do I said get rid of your chair and just come here and just walk around the boundary yeah, so really? he said he's going to after Christmas he's just going to go for a walk so it was so simple I think he thought I was going to say you've got to have this amount of protein per gram per kilogram per day you've got to lift and I said yeah. mate basically just get off your ass and move yeah. while you're at your kids cricket yeah it's critical Andrew in fact the last few years I've been looking for other challenges in my life and I found that I've picked up on trekking so I've done a few treks and uh, I often tell people people say What's, what have you been doing you must be doing heaps and heaps of training I said no the, res- the way in which I train for these treks is I train with my vacuum cleaner and they go, you with your what? I said, yeah, well, I'd be nowhere without um, Dyson vacuum cleaners because basically <laughs> what I do is I just spend time doing what I call met minutes. So I did one particular trek where I looked at every day required four times the resting energy for every minute. And I did it for 360 minutes. So I worked out what my energy expenditure would be. That I cut that by half, and then I found everything around the house and just equated that with the same number of minutes. Your wife must have loved oh, she you. She loves me. Time, yeah, yeah. She, since the best, since I've discovered Mets and Met minutes, her life has changed dramatically. So you're not out there doing VO2 intense anaerobic threshold. You you got the Dyson and you're hoovering up. I'm hoovering. I'm hoovering up a storm. And in fact, my grandson now has inherited it. Him and I hoover together. So we're now training for our next trek, and we're doing it via our vacuum cleaner, our mop. 
Uh, we do heaps of sweeping as well, so our house is really clean. Which and this is, is great. on video. You're not you're not taking the piss. Like, <laughs> no, I'm and I, I know you. No, no. Uh, you never would have said this 15 years ago. No, if I'd come to you as a client and said, "Hey, Doctor Batman, I'm I'm doing Everest Base Camp, or I'm doing a yeah. trek Kilimanjaro," you would have had me doing high intensity exercise, hyperbaric stuff, weights. And now you're just saying, "Go get your vacuum cleaner," yeah. and yeah. Well, basically, I did. I went to those places and I did it basically on just things. I changed the way I do things in the home. I rarely drive my car. I walk as much as I possibly can. I sit and stand 50 times a day. Uh, and I find active leisure in anything I do. So if I go watch my grandkids play sport, I don't see it. I mm. just keep moving. So just sit to stand 50 times a day. Let's yeah. dig into that. Yeah, it's interesting because I read a really interesting book on uh, space flight because I love flying. So, And one of the things that I came up- Do you stand? I, all the time. <laughs> That's you one do, of the problems with spaceflight. <laughs> In fact, there's, there's really significant dif- well, there's significant uh, similarities between astronauts and old men and inactive people because what they do is they misuse gravity. You know, the astronaut has oh, no yeah. choice, but the older person becomes more sedentary and the inactive person is very sedentary. So a lot of the problems that happen in spaceflight are also mirrored in the sort of things we do in sedentary life. So what they did in one of the key things that they've attempted to do in in getting astronauts to come when they come back to Earth to get used to the gravity again, was they would do intermittent standing from sitting in a lying position. So every 15 minutes, they would stand them up, walk a couple of minutes, sit them down. They did that 32 minute, uh, 32 times a day. Well, it makes sense because when people go to space for a long period of time, they're not doing weight-bearing activity, so yeah. problems with bone density, muscle wastage, coordination, balance. And these are all of the things that happen with ageing and also with sedentary yeah. lifestyle. The worst thing to be is an older person who's inactive. All right. You don't even have to be an astronaut for that, but you'll get the similar sort of an effect. Sedentary versus inactive, what's the difference? Well, to, to me, inactivity or being inactive is the absence of 30 to 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise. And people that are inactive are more likely to maintain gym membership or join a gym. Sedentary people are an entirely different breed, and this is what we're doing. We're actually breeding a population of sedentary people. And basically, they are people who spend an inordinate amount of time, generally more than 10 hours a day, in a sitting, lying uh, position where their energy expended is no greater than one met. More than 10 hours a day during waking hours. During waking hours, yeah, sorry, yeah, waking hours, yeah. So what we're going to try and do, I think if we could reduce that 10 hours to less than six hours, that Mm. would make a significant difference to people's health and general fitness. And you can also have the active couch potato, right? Because we the all know these people. That, and and I, I see this, and you've seen this, mate, for decades. Yeah, you talk to someone, yeah, I go to the gym three times a week. I go Monday, you go Wednesday, and I go Saturday morning before yeah. the kids' sport. And I go, what do you do the rest of the time? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> N-U-F-F-I-N. Good Aussie term, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is fantastic. <laughs> Nothing. But that's true. You can, be, you can be fit and you can still be unhealthy. Hmm. Uh, because the thing that we now realise is that being sedentary is not the same as not going to the gym. So the active couch potato is basically that. It's a person who goes to the gym three to four times a week and does the right thing, which is fantastic. Let's, you know, we, we're not bagging that. We're saying that's great. But the reality is now we're finding that the sedentary periods that we spend, that eight, nine, ten hours, can undo many of the good things that you can do in the gym. So I want people to become active exercisers. Mm. And an active exerciser is someone that goes to the gym but is also active throughout their day with low to moderate intensity, multiple muscle contractions. And if you get the best of those two, then, then you know the world's your oyster. 10,000 steps or met? Because like, we know 10,000 steps, and we've spoken about this before, a lot of it goes back to the Tokyo Olympics and yeah. they 
introduced a pedometer to sell and make a whole lot of money to say you need 10,000 steps. Uh, Australian researchers about five, six years ago did some research on that and said, look, there is some science around this. You need at least seven to 8,000. We tell people in our corporate programs that Strive Stronger, get to 10,000 because it's a nice number. It it keeps them moving during the day. But I haven't asked you this. What, What would you subscribe or do you do you still get people to count steps if they can't measure met yeah absolutely uh, the met concept is that there is a simple way of doing it but it's probably beyond what we can talk about today but you can relate all these things together but if we look at the steps themselves personally i think seven and a half thousand to ten thousand steps is good if you look at the national recommendations which is 30 minutes of exercise per day that ends up being about three thousand steps so if you look at a lot of the research, they say inactive people are 3,000 steps or less, yet we're saying, well, if people do national recommendations, they're doing 3,000 steps. So personally, I think that 10,000 steps is really good to aim for. I, I look at what our body is designed to do. You know, we've got a 150,000-year-old body that hasn't really changed that much, mm-hmm. and it was brought up on anywhere between eight to 16,000 steps a day. So we're now saying, well, we have this body, but now we can just do 3,000 steps. And I'm saying, well, I don't see that. I think we should be doing the 8,000. But I'm a little bit different. I don't think you should do those 10,000 steps at any one time. I think they need to be broken up during the course of the day. I was going to ask you on this, yeah. Yeah, So I I would like to see people do 10,000 steps, if that's what they want. But I want them to go from a sitting to standing position anywhere between 30 and 50 times a day. And If you were to get up 30 times a day and walk for two minutes, you'd probably do five and a half thousand steps anyway mm. and, and that's a big thing i took out of talking to you recently was to sit to stand yes yeah, I, I haven't been counting <laughs> i was wondering <laughs> do you have a little clock going yeah, 40, that's another one. 41 we, I, you know, i'm a, enough of a scientific loser when we catch up and <laughs> uh, without doing that but you get a fair guide like uh, apple watch i'm sure apple this watch, as well yeah. with closing the band absolutely and i mean you said a little alarm i mean it doesn't have to be stringent i think the theory and the philosophy behind it is the fact that we go from a seated position to a standing position we double the number of METs. So we're doubly increasing the energy expenditure to start with. From sitting to standing recruits 100 muscles or more. That's significant. The number of neural pathways that are opened up just in that simple movement is also significant. And the cellular involvement is massive. So we never underestimate the fact that we move from a seated to a standing position. It's a transitional movement that our body's designed to do. We throw two minutes worth of activity in that into it. I call it a strolling mode because it doesn't have to be fast. You're going to cover probably 100 steps anyway minimum maybe even more and then you sit down your body relaxes it's a form of interval training but it just doesn't have the so watch the cricket and get rid of your remote just yeah, get rid of like and seriously just, get up and I, I actually don't think you can do that anymore on tvs you, you can't, can't press it it's got to be the remote. every over just get up and have a bit of a walk around and come yeah. back or at least stand anyway but I, someone i know recently did it through the ads so evidently the ad breaks are 15 minutes or 10 minutes per uh, ads, for yeah. hour so they just get it when the ads are on are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year, and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging, that's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on, neuroscience and behavior change, mental skills, and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including a morning wake up, energy breaks, team building activities, and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com keynotes.
Tell me about your floppy dorsal fin. <laughs> not, not, sorry, I'll rephrase that. I personally <laughs> have one, but from what I understand. Yeah. I told you we're going to be pretty honest here at these Strive Stronger yeah, podcasts. I, well, I, I can't admit to having a floppy dorsal your, fin. So, but oh, can I rephrase that? <laughs> Tell us about the floppy dorsal fin. Well, the flap, flaccid fin syndrome was coined by a couple of researchers a little while ago looking at whales in captivity, and they found that the dorsal fin itself on the whale actually became floppy. And part of the reason for it was the whale itself was in a confined area. So it had this body that was designed to do multiple movements, you know, going from place to place. But in actual fact, it just swam around in one direction around a pool. And the pool itself was a, it wasn't very deep, it was quite shallow. And because of that, the body of the whale started to take on a different form. So I suggest to people that if they sit for long periods of time, they've probably got a floppy dorsal fin itself. It's probably not as such a dorsal fin, but there are other changes within their body that are really significant. And I think I've mentioned here that I think that a lot of chronic diseases can be relayed back to two things, many other things as well. One is a little enzyme called an LPL enzyme, and its job is to vacuum the fat out of the blood. And the other one is the mitochondria, which we said we love anyway, and mitochondria goes into, into distress. So if we were to sit for 30 minutes, which we're doing now, the bad news is that, and I'll see you about this later, is that my we, LPL enzyme... We can stand enzyme, up. Like we, we might have <laughs> to practice have to, what we're preaching. My yeah. LPL enzyme will probably go to sleep after 20 minutes, and then I will probably have a greater proportion of uh, free fatty acids within my, my uh, vascular system because of not moving. Now, I can go to the gym after this, and that LPL enzyme will still be dormant. I have to get up and move around and do those multiple contractions throughout the day in order for that to make a significant change and and this is what I think we have to realize is that being sedentary is not the same as not going to the gym there are problems that are specific to sedentary behavior that cannot be attenuated by the gym and the fact is our lifestyle has changed so much that our body is now maladapting to this new environment we've got to think back to what our grandparents did the lifestyles that they led and whilst I'm not saying we should lead the same lifestyle we could learn a lot from them. Well, if you go back to the, the flaccid fin syndrome, right? Yep. They, they're just not moving. So yeah. if you say that in prehistoric times, we used to move between 8, 10, 16,000 steps a day, we're getting three. Yeah. Flaccid syndrome, like I've got a lot of male clients in their late 40s, early 50s. Um, they don't come to me for erectile dysfunction. I didn't <laughs> I didn't have on my running order here, Dr. Paul Backman, we get to- uh, I take no responsibility for that one. <laughs> and start talking about erectile dysfunction. But uh, you know this as well from your, your job over the years as well. For a lot of men, when they're not using their bodies, so mm. it's exactly like the, the dorsal fin. So I have guys come back and go, mate, it's working. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, your waist or your, 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 yeah. your body's, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> One guy said to me, it's like being 16 again up the back of the bus. So it's way too much information, I know. But he's he had a floppy dorsal fin because, you know, his mitochondria, his LPL, it makes so much sense when you lay it out like that. But why aren't we then heeding the message? Why are we getting yeah, fatter? I, why are we getting more mental health problems? If we've got more knowledge, more information than ever before, what's going on? Yeah, it's a good question, Andrew. I wish I had the answer. Uh, the reality is that there is more information out there. We are m more than aware that we have to move more. Mm. 
But the options we give people are not necessarily the ones that people want. That We're exercising for the wrong reasons. It's the wrong why. You know, we're exercising because we need to burn calories to lose weight. That doesn't make the activity enjoyable and it doesn't make it sustainable. There'll be a core of people like you and I who love to exercise hard and, and I'm probably one of those ones who suffered because I created a whole new risk factor in it. Mm. Uh, so I think the idea that everything is easy, uh, everything is more convenient now than it's ever been before, we're adapting that lifestyle. You know, we're addicted to social media. We love our smartphones and so they're just not conducive they're a to constant companion now our mobile phones have moved from a technology tool yeah. and they are a constant like look at a bus look at a plane i i, I watch people not in a weird way but a, you know behavioral science way and, and glued you go into corporations glued you go yeah. into workshops we just are absolutely addicted to these things i think so too and, and i think based on that we've just like i said before we've outsourced our lives i would really like to pe- people to realize that they don't have to exercise hard or intensely to get a significant health benefit if they were to change their lifestyle and looked at all the inactive things they do during the course of the day and simply replace them with more active alternatives without any super complex exercise prescription I think it would work well. And I did read a study recently in the UK where they said that 42% of the people decided they wouldn't do an exercise program because they didn't know who to believe and it was just too complicated. I I don't think it needs to be that complicated. I think we've made it more complicated. We do. Kim Kardashian says this and, you know, ex-celebrity says that and 10,000 steps. No, not 10,000 steps. High intensity. No, go low intensity. It's confusing. It's hard enough when you work in this space, right, to try and sift through all the science and what's bullshit. So someone listening to this or if someone went to see you and they are inactive, first of all, what percentage of people would be listening to this that are sedentary we think 50% 50% of people listening to this are sedentary. I think 50% are inactive, but I would say that 80% or more are sedentary because if you're going to the gym and you're doing all the right things, you're active, but you could still be sedentary. Okay. So I think what's happened is that our lifestyle has changed so much that the majority of us are sedentary unless we make a conscious effort to move more. And we're under the impression that by doing that 30 to 60 minutes that everything else will go by the wayside and will become healthier. And to a point, that's certainly true. But there are a lot of other factors there that are not attenuated by that. So I, I, I would tell people initially to stand and st- go from a standing sitting position to a standing position, do that 30 to 50 times. The second thing I would then get them to do is to try and look at what they do, activate their lifestyle, look at their home, look at their work, look at their transport, look at their leisure, look for inactive periods. And then what you can do is to substitute more active alternatives. And something simple as just standing makes all the difference. I'd really like the stand and stroll concept where the 10,000 steps is something that we can move toward, but don't do it at one particular time. Because I've known people that have done 10,000 steps or even three or four hours of activity and they sit for the rest of the day. Mm, that's and a that lot of people, mate. I think we'll, we've assessed thousands of people this year alone. The average person we see sitting for nine, 9.3 hours per day now. And, and I think we underreport that stuff as well because oh, it's just yeah. not looking too good. I'll, you know, I'll yeah. say I'm standing a little bit more than I am. Yeah. I'd love to see people reducing their sitting to six hours a day. It would be difficult and obviously hard in a workplace where you do sit. I don't think the idea of standing all day is the answer either because it, it's everything in moderation. You know, too much standing can be as bad as too much sitting. We need to have uh, you know transitional movements between both. So if we break it down, first of all, get up 30 to 50 times a day. Yep. So, so move from sit to stand. Yep. Uh, and then you would bring 
bring in as much activity as you can in those four key areas. Yeah, yeah. Look and at it, opportunities to move. Absolutely. And it's exactly what it is, an opportunity to move, an OTM, whatever it is. Opportunity to move. We've got to have more move. acronyms, don't we? We OTM, have to have more yeah. acronyms. Let's <laughs> work on that one. And then the third layer would be, then you would start counting steps. Yeah. I really think there's a spillover effect too, as I mentioned to you before. I think, uh, look, don't get me wrong, I love the gym. I love high-intensity exercise. I love the people that work. I think they're a fantastic job. But our lifestyles have changed so much that that's just not enough anymore. And so I just want to see more people become more active all throughout these other areas and create this this group of you know active exercises. Mm. Uh, if you can't do it, the spillover effect, I think, is where if we could get people to become more active in their life, then they would be more likely to become more active by doing moderate to vigorous exercise 30 to 60 minutes. We want to get them to do that, but we have to create this lifestyle that leads them to it. And the top five out of the top six countries in the world that have the highest penetration rates in fitness are also the most active groups, have the lowest obesity levels, and are the least sedentary. So who are the top five? Uh, Sweden, Denmark, all the Nordic countries. And the outliers we said before is the US who have a 23, I think 23% penetration rate. But ironically, they are an outlier because they have more people uh, penetrating into fitness, but they also have highest obesity levels. They have the uh, highest sedentary levels as well. So that's a mismatch compared so to some of the European and countries. doing are two separate things, right? So you've got Absolutely. the motivation, ha, ha, hey, go do this program, and you might go to the gym. But then and we know, I think eight, after 18 months, 70, 60, 70% of yeah, most gym... probably 75% after 18 months won't go. I mean, some of the st- statistics are alarming, really. You know, I mean, as we said before, penetration rate in Australia is about 17.4%, I think, from the 2017 study. Um, out of that... Probably after three months, 33 and a third will probably drop out. After 12 months, maybe 48%. After 18 months, around the 70-some percent. So we are dropping out along the way. And the ones that are still going, less than 40% will go twice a week. So I think a lot of it has to do with the intensity factor as well. A lot of people, particularly overweight, older people, those suffering from metabolic syndrome, can't exercise hard anyway because their VO2 maxes are so low. They tap into those anaerobic sources too early. It becomes uncomfortable. It and hurts. It's so they won't sustain Delayed it. onset. But, but yeah. you, we haven't even spoken about exercise. That's step four, right? So first of all, get up 30 to 50 yeah. times, yeah. stand a set. Yeah. Second one is look at those four key areas and incorporate movement as an opportunity. Then on top of that, you'd probably look at counting your steps. Then, now we get into the exercise. So, whereas most gyms, and, and a, a lot of people listening to this are personal trainers and gym owners and yep. allied health professionals, we're not canning the fitness no, industry. Far from it. We're just saying, hey, times have changed. You know, you've got Batman here saying, holy <laughs> atherosclerosis, what you were prescribing many years ago, what you know, Professor Tim knows, because they're classic, right? Basically, invented the gels, or uh, well, part of the body that invented the sports gels, and come out and said, look, it's giving us all diabetes and metabolic syndrome. It's rubbish, get off it. But what would you tell people for that fourth phase? So to, to become an exerciser on top of being active, what's the best, if, if we look at a week, what should we yeah. be doing? Well, it's no question we should, we should do some cardiovascular activity, as we said before. I don't think the intensity needs to be as high. We certainly need to do resistance training. So there needs to be at least two to three sessions worth of resistance training, full body type activities. Uh, we need to become stronger because one of the things that happens with aging that we lose very quickly is muscle mass and strength. And a lot of the problems we have with posture and our ability to hold our body in space has to do is the lack of strength. So we need to do it. And yeah. as we get older, it becomes detrimental to our general health. I've, so. I've changed my exercise 
yep. uh, structure so much in the last couple of years. One was talking to you and realizing that I'm a cardio pig, so I love to <laughs> run. So, don't run as much now, but cycle, swim, surf, ski, and I go hard. You know, I, I train with other similar mates of mine. They're mid forties, and we really think we've got a shot for the next Olympics. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Middle aged men in, to be total, in total denial, Paul. Um, so I. I I'm not doing the long junk miles like I was, mm-hmm. but I'm doing a lot more resistance training. One is, you know, you know, my story on match fit went through a marriage separation a number of years ago. Uh, my, I suppose, recovery was a combination of uh, fast food, alcohol, and speed dating, and that was fun for a while. It was, <laughs> it was like paper macheing over a big wound, but then I noticed my body shape changed, and uh, I couldn't run, I couldn't cycle my way out of a bad diet. But then I started doing resistance training. And I, and I saw the fat come off. So that really changed my mindset that to lose weight, we used to say, you know, go for a run, go for a bike ride. But no, no, to lose weight, get more metabolically active, you're going to shoot up your basic mets as well and you're going to change your whole profile, your metabolic profile. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Andrew. Absolutely. I think resistance training is underplayed really. Uh, the trouble is we don't have to be bodybuilders to do it too, you know. It's a general program for the entire body. But it's always – I, I now, as much as I like going to the gym, I do try to do more things around the house. I do more pushing, pulling, lifting, carrying, that type of thing. I live in a house that's got lots of steps. I would do 10,000 step-ups per day just by virtue of the, the house that I live in. So the environment plays a, a key role in it. Uh, but I can, we can never underestimate the value of moderate to vigorous exercise that we do in the gym. The gym is a wonderful place. The activities we do there are great. It's just that not everyone wants to go to the gym and not everyone is conducive to it. Certain body types, and particularly the sedentary groups, will rarely ever go to the gym. And if they do, the chance of them maintaining the program long-term are limited. And the reality is that if you're going to get a benefit from movement, you have to move for the rest of your life. In fact, someone asked me recently what I helped them design a program, and I said, well, how much time are you going to spend at this? I'm only going to do it for three months. I said, unless you commit for the rest of your life, I can't really help you. Mm. And so that's what When it was is. the last time you were really out of your comfort zone? Apart from talking to me about a floppy dorsal fin. <laughs> that's like auto-corrected. <laughs> talking to my cardiologist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? yeah? That certainly bothered me, yeah. I mean, given that I'd, I'd done it all my life and all of a sudden I thought I'd live forever. And I mean, I'm only in my early 60s you know, at the time, so I was concerned that, mm. wow, you know, and I, I, I guess there was a, a situation where I thought, well, maybe we need to start challenging some beliefs and that's where we went. So, yeah, comfort zone was, wow, this is not right. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't think a lot of us who prescribe well-being, who prescribe fitness, get out of our comfort zone enough. Yeah. To Mine was relearning to swim and taking on a swimming challenge and I went to swim squad and I felt – isolated I felt everyone was looking at me I felt they're going to laugh at me because my techniques all over the place and how on earth am I going to build up to doing 15k a week um, and it was a really good activity not not just physically and psychologically but experientially I got for the first time in a long time probably in memory the feeling of what it's like to be the minority in a in an otherwise fit group and I just had that ah oh, this is how so many people feel when they go to a gym because people start talking about, okay, do trail, do drill, forward catch, get you. I'm like, can you teach me to do bilateral breathing? <laughs> so I was way out, I was a, you know, a fish out of water, part in the part. So I think a lot of people who prescribe fitness and well-being have never been or haven't put themselves in a dance class or go do comedy lessons or you know go do a cooking class where you've got all these domain experts in their craft 
understand what it feels to be like that person. Because I have no doubt, mate, all the people that need to do those first three things, if they could do that, sit to stand 30 to 50 times a day, you know, start incorporating movement as an opportunity, then get 10,000 steps. Guess what? When you go to the gym, you're probably going to feel a little bit more like doing the other exercise, but then we've got to be supportive. So you've mentioned this to me before off air. There's all these tribes right, you know, for fit people. What about a tribe for? We want active non-exercisers. In fact, that's what I think. If we could get a group of people that are active non-exercisers that change their lifestyle, doesn't have to be extensive, just change their lifestyle to move more, then like I said, the spillover effect for that group of people, they then want to go to the gym and not feel left out and not feel uh, that they're in an environment they're uncomfortable with would be huge. I think it would be huge. And that's why I say we want to go from an active non-exerciser to an active exerciser, we don't want to be an inactive exerciser, if that mm. makes sense, or the active couch potato. Active couch potato, yeah. That's had a light bulb moment go on, which we'll have a talk about off air. Okay. I reckon next year we need to get a tribe yep. on that. We want you. Look, I'm happy to be part of that tribe. Yeah. I want an active non-exerciser group for sure. Yeah. I, 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 I yeah, I just wonder where we go and recruit those people and whether they <laughs> want us to be in that environment. But yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thought, isn't it, to create a group yeah. where people feel comfortable. Yeah. They can then share, support each other, and then it's confidence capability. If yeah. you have more confidence, Absolutely. you get more skills. If you lose your confidence, you don't try stuff. So, And in the current environment, if we look at the three key parts of stenetic behaviour, older people, metabolic syndrome people, and overweight or obese people – they don't fit. They're a round peg fitting into a square hole. As much as the gyms try to, and they do a great job to attract them, mm. the trouble is that it's very difficult for those people to maintain it. And you know, there are ten key things you generally have to do in order to get inact uh, to get sedentary people to become more active. Anyway, it's a very a very hard situation we've just got to encourage them you've got to provide support for them you've got to give direction for them but you've got to give them small goals that they can reach they have to be treated differently they have to create their own little tribe uh, tweak existing environments all those things become critical to get them to the point where they could be successful in the gym why aren't governments doing this and why isn't uh, the World Health Organisation addressing this? Well, I think without being negative about World Health Organisation, I think they're fantastic. But I don't think a lot of the global fitness activity organisations view fitness as a legitimate intervention or a legitimate mode. I think people tend to Isn't see... Isn't that fit- bad? So does the World Health Organisation, and, and, and I am going to ask you this in a roundabout <laughs> way because I know you may have had some work in this space, but uh, do you think there's some people sitting out there, Paul, thinking that the World Health Organisation looks down at the fitness industry? Uh, probably to some degree, Andrew. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, public health programs, I think, look down at the fitness industry to some degree. And I think it's a shame because... The fitness industry is a body of people that are trying to do the right thing, and in many cases they are. But the reality is that there are still a lot of people out there who are sedentary. It's an increasingly greater number of people, then they're not going to go to the gym. They're not going to go to what's being offered. We have to give them something else. But the wheels of government, the wheels of public health turn slow. Mm. And a lot of them, they won't commit themselves to anything before it's actually been researched. I'm telling you this stuff now based on some of the research I've found, but it's not definitive research. But a lot of this research is you, right? A, so a lot of it is me empirically because of what I've been through and over the last 45 years of my own You've got a activity. little bit of a history to be able to... Yeah, there's a bit of history. And I guess that I'm challenging some of those beliefs. Uh, I just think we need to do things a little bit differently. Uh, without just thinking that what we're currently doing is is solving the problem, because it isn't. It's solving the problem for some, but not for the majority. Do any of your contemporaries think you're a little bit crazy? Because uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I I've had a few people in the fitness industry uh, say, oh, look, I love what 
what Batman's doing. And I had one person go, oh, it's pretty controversial. Yeah. Um, but do you think there's anyone out there that thinks you're, you know, he's oh, lost I think bit? that they probably thought long before I came up with this concept, Andrew, that that was the case. But all I'm trying to do is, is share some information and to try and get people on site so we can have a discussion about it. I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. I'm just saying from what I've seen – that we're not as successful as what we could. And what I would really love is the fitness industry to pick this up and run with it and not leave it to outside groups to come up with the recommendations. Why aren't we in fitness? We're fitness people. We should be leading this. Mm. And currently at the moment, it's not happening. So it might be controversial, but I'm just saying let's work together on it. Let's mm. not divide it. You, you just said before you, you're in your 60s. You've had a successful career. Why don't you just leave it? What's... <laughs> That's a set-up question. That's a good question, isn't it? You've um, really got me on that one. We're going to live to 90 to 100. or My new number, I haven't told you this, I, I want to live to 130. Oh, God, yeah. 130. But no health span plus lifespan, which we'll talk about another day with resveratrol okay. and MNN and telomeres. And yeah, yeah. Oh, telomeres. I love telomeres. I know you I do. I know. We could go another 45 <laughs> minutes. Let's let's come back and talk about longevity. Okay. But look, I want to leave, at least crack 100. I think that's a, that's a good score. What's driving you? If you can, you can still go you know, another good 30, 40 years. You've had a successful yeah. career. What, nah. what is it? That, what, what's the burn inside you that you just got to get? Because like, you are more passionate now, not, not as, more passionate than when I was a skinny, big-haired <laughs> kid. Like you were passionate there, but you got a whole different level. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, my philosophy is always I would never go home from work unless I learnt something different that I didn't know before I went to work. So I think I'm still in that mode. I'm just really excited about all this new information that's out there. And I think, you know, we can all make an impact on people's lives if we just take it to another step. And so, yeah, I just love talking to people about it. And, you know, people want to hear more about it. Great. If they think I'm an idiot or too controversial or whatever, that's okay too. I can live with that. I think controversial is good though. It's not, it's could be deemed as controversial but I, I just think it's it's your experience you've had an about turn you're out there saying the exact opposite of what a lot of people have said uh we're getting fatter um we're getting more problems so something's not working so yeah, i, I yeah. love the fresh approach yeah well i think it's only new to it this is the inactivity physiologist said entry physiology discipline is very young you know it's it's a baby it's embryonic almost you know so there'll be a lot more information that will come forward you know there's some fantastic researchers out there this information that i'm sort of trying to get out there is nothing that i've done it's my experience there have been tremendous researchers out there i'm just sort of standing on the shoulders of giants with this uh but i just think that you know the more people that challenge the status quo and say well let's look at something a little bit different the more likely that there, there will be change what do we do with kids you're a doting grandfather. Like you, just, you, you love, you're telling me at Christmas time, you, you, the, your tribe coming into Batman <laughs> tribe. My tribe, yep. How do we change this with kids? Because you know, like I know with Archer and Michaela, my kids at school, they're now doing, like I got a card with a Q code on it. So mm-hmm. you know, I scanned it and it was Shrek going, ah, love you, Dad. And Michaela <laughs> did that in year five. It was fantastic. Yeah. But some schools now have physical activity as an elective. So how do we even bring this right back to little people who are yeah. our future leaders? I think it goes back to the family. I don't think it's a responsibility of the school or outside groups. Uh, I think it's great for kids to play sport, but I don't think that's the answer either. I think they should do that. But at the end of the day, it's what mum and dad do. It's the 
changes they make within the home, the transport, etc., that will impact on the kids and the kids themselves will become more active. I mean, I'd love to go to schools and say to them, look, by you sitting and standing and moving and not doing a great deal, but trying to change the concept and be more educated into what it means to be sedentary, because it is devastating, really, uh, then maybe they'll make better choices. And at the end of the day, the choices that kids make are directly related to the impact that their families have on them. I love hearing you say that. I've got a, a friend, she's a PE teacher at a private school in Sydney, she, the teacher has, has had two bullying claims against her from parents because she's told private uh, girls' school, she's told these two separate students, you need to you know, train a little bit harder, you need to exercise more. One of the mums came in and said, my daughter prefers positive praise rather than being told what to do. And and, and her young daughter is is overweight the, and this friend of mine's only trying to help her. I'm going, my God, it's got to a stage, you know, we're getting kids everyone gets a ribbon for coming 10th. What, 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 what are the parents doing there to actually stand back and go, you know, they're blaming the school. What are they doing at home? So I love hearing that. As a parent, I think the number one gift we can give our kids is physical activity is fun. Yeah. And movement is the foundation to life. And maybe we teach our kids about LPL and mitochondria. <laughs> you can never you can never have too much LPL and mitochondria, Andrew. Yeah, and I agree 100%. I really do think that you know, it's a responsibility of us as a family, not just the, the parents, but everything else. I mean, the mum and dad have such an influence on their kids that you know they should capitalise on it and try and make it more active. But you've got to educate the parents. And the trouble is the parents are being brought up with the inactivity, sedentary physiologists being the norm. But it's it may be the norm in society today, but it hasn't always been the norm. I, I'm old enough to know that when I was a kid, we had none of this type of thing and we lived an active life. So we were a poor family. We had a um, we lived an active lifestyle because we didn't have a choice. You know, that was just the way it was. My mother and grandmother lived till their eighties and nineties, not because they went to the gym. They went to the shops every day, they shopped every day, they didn't have a fridge, you know, they 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 lived an older lifestyle which I, I think impacted on their longevity. We'll we'll come back and do a longevity one. I want to talk yeah, about telomeres, I want to talk about blue zones, I want to talk about the, the pointy end of all the uh, medication and everything as well. But let's we'll do a big duck dive into that. Sounds good. Paul, we've spoken about chronic cardio syndrome. We've spoken about your floppy dorsal. Sorry, not your. We've spoken <laughs> about floppy dorsal fins. I'm just winding you up there. I, I've got this in front of you. I'd like to take a look. Dr. Tom Buckley and I have put this together. I think this has taken me 15 years of work, Paul. So that either means that this is rigorous, baked in rigor and science. <laughs> or it means I'm not the sharpest tool on the shed. And, and with Dr. Tom, we've really tried to filter this down because so many people when we run programs when i do coaching they listen to all the biohackers and we know how to wind each other up by hey paul give me a hack and you're like oh god how about healthy living for 20 years so level one physiology building block at wizard we'll make sure we put this up as a show notes assuming paul batman dr paul batman agrees but level one physiology building blocks and level two longevity and performance let's go level one physiology building blocks we believe this just gets you healthy 10,000 steps a day, morning sun exposure for 10 to 20 minutes, intermittent fasting for men and women. Now, asterisks on this, women, when they go through menopause, go see an endocrinologist, get a specialized program, 16 to 18 hours a day, two days a week, alcohol-free days. Gosh, Paul, people have been so engaged listening to you and they're dropping off in droves now. What? (laughs) (laughs) Four to five days a week, best on the school nights, and sauna heat exposure. And we've done a couple of podcasts on that as well, 15 to 20 minutes twice a week. So what do you think of those five guidelines, basic physiology building blocks? 
I think you and Dr. Tom have done a terrific job, Andrew, really. Um, oh, wizard, put it up on the platform. (laughs) Those 15 years were worth it. (laughs) I think what I really like about both your level one and your level two is you've simplified it. Uh, Because as you said, there's so much information out there at the moment and it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong. So to my way of thinking, this is great. You know, the 10 to 12 and a half thousand steps in particular, because the physical activity is more my thing anyway, uh, is really the sweet spot anyway. There's some great research out that's even shown that you can get benefits from two and a half thousand steps. But I think the thing that I've found in more recent times is that everything is based on risk management. The more you put into it, the greater the risk, but the more you get out of it. So you can almost do nothing and still get some benefit, but it might be a two or three percent benefit. But what you've got here, twelve and a half thousand or ten to twelve and a half thousand steps, that's about a seventy-five percent reduction in risk factors, which is about as good as it's going to get. Some suggest that if you do around eight thousand one hundred, I think they're talking about fifty-one percent reduction in cardiovascular disease and. 60% reduction in all-cause mortality. So I guess the message is you can do less and still get benefit, but if you want the optimum benefit, then 10 to 12, uh, 12,500 steps, I think anyway, is the sweet spots for it. And it's interesting because after about 12,500 steps, those responses start to plateau out. Yeah, it's actually, uh, Tom showed me the research last week knowing that we were chatting. It's 12,400. I'll get the research paper and we can also put the link in the show notes, Wiz, for any of those who really want to nerd out. Because I, I hear sometimes, mate, people go, oh, I've got my steps up twenty to 25,000. I go, what else are you doing? Nothing, N-U-F-F-I-N. Hey, drop it back to about 10 to 12, and let's get you to level two, which we'll talk about in a moment, lift some heavy weights and rev the engine. Um, but when you look at those five, sun exposure, intermittent fasting, alcohol-free and sauna, I, I can't help but think, mate, you know, back when you first taught me when I was a bright-eyed, I just turned 18, you know, when I first met you at Oatley <laughs> Campus. Was I that old? Gee. Well, you've still got hair. I had a full head back then. I, I, I used to I go to a well. hairdresser and get, get my hair thinned out. That's how long ago. But you were telling us about a lot of the training that they were doing in the Eastern Bloc countries. Now, we know that they were using some other supplements that we definitely don't promote but some of the training they were doing basic medicine ball training they were doing cold water therapy back then they were having sauna back then Paul they were fasting and and they were just moved because they didn't have an Uber driver or Jimmy Getz I can't help but think we've done a full circle and gone back to even some of those guidelines you were telling us about the Russians and Bulgarians way back in the 30s and 40s yeah look I think you're 100% right Andrew it is interesting isn't it intermittent fasting has been around forever and as we know, you know, if we go back to our Stone Age ancestors, that's basically what they did. They ate when they needed to or ate when they could. So there was a lot of intermittent fasting. So, you know, I'm a real believer in what we did 250,000 years ago is basically what we should still be doing because we have this Stone Age body that's really not fit for the sort of things we do today. So the intermittent fasting, I do that myself. I, I swear by it. Alcohol-free days are a bit of an issue, I guess, for a lot of people. Uh, but nevertheless... You know, everything in moderation. You know, there's some suggestion that, you know, the glass of red wine a night can be advantageous to your cardiovascular system. And the one I really like is the sauna. I just moved into a new house and previously the house I had before it had a sauna in it. And I used to use it regularly. And I think that heat, heat therapy in particular is really, really good. And I also like the, the cold water immersion, you know, and, and as I mentioned to you before that, and a lot of the gyms now they're putting in recovery centers and the basis of that recovery center is cold water therapy. 
you know, so it, it's now becoming much more popular. And it makes more sense. It's an anti-inflammatory, creates an anti-inflammatory response. That's the drop down where we go from five key components of physiology building blocks to six. Only reason we're a little bit more cautionary or precautious on cold water. There's been a number of instances where people have had heart attacks and that's when you you get a bit excited and do the Wim Hof and and, Dino Gladstone is one of Wim Hof's practitioners and I love Dino and he's he's got real rigour in what he does. Dino does screen but we put that as a, a secondary just so people are cautious but if you wanted to add to that a cold shower a couple of times a week or swim in a cold river or you, you know I swim all year round now as well just be conscious for people if you do have any history you or in your family on, on heart little tickers don't go and jump in an ice bath that's two degrees just yet no couldn't agree more Andrew those sort of things need to be done under supervision as you said yeah the cold shower is as good as any I mean, and, you know, for years and years, we used to do contrasting showers, hot shower, cold shower, hot shower, cold shower, as part of recovery. So, yeah, I think that's probably where it stops without supervision. You, you put us onto that back in, gosh, when did I study with you? It was not the 80s. It was the mid-90s. Mid-90s. And now it's yeah. all cool again. And, yeah, that's that combining that have a sauna, go jump in the shower. The, the protocol I love that for that is sauna, for seven to ten minutes and then go do 90 seconds of cold and do that two or three times and, and that's a really really good one. hey so level two longevity and performance drum roll and this just backs up so much of what we've been talking about it's resistance training 30 to 40 minutes only by twice a week it's interval training 30 to 40 minutes only by twice a week but interesting in the interval training and i know you love med minimum effective dose it's six minutes at 85 percent of maximum heart rate so if i step back that's two weight sessions a week and try and lift heavy weights or build up to it and two cardio sessions of 30 to 40 minutes and just make sure in at least one of those you've got six minutes with the heart rate revving at about 85 percent but what i like about double dipping if you had someone go to the gym once and lift heavy weights do some cardio go for a swim ride the bike go for a run and in the middle of it rev the engine for six minutes at 85 percent and then do a crossfit session where you get the benefits of both now if you do level one and do those three from your decades of experience does that tick the box on all the metabolic markers all the physiology factors that you've been teaching for years and years yeah it does andrew for sure and as i said to you before i i I like to be challenged all the time because what, what we did years ago doesn't necessarily mean it was right, you know. And the research now is so much better. The quality of the research is greater. There's much more scrutiny. The instrumentation we have is much more sophisticated. So there are a lot of things that I think we need to address. And even the WHO um, recommendations, whilst I, I love them and I think we should do them, one of the interesting ones is has to do with the interval training you just mentioned, that you're looking at you know, 30 to 40 minutes per week of interval training, which is great. Now, that's probably six to nine METs, maybe a little bit more than nine METs occasionally, a foray into it. But if you look at the WHO, they're still talking about 75 to 150 minutes a week. Now, for the people that need um, more health-related type activities over 50s, I'm, I'm nearly 70, so I can't imagine, and I know that there are many that around that 50 that cannot do 75 to 150. So to me, that's just an overkill. You've you've hit it on the head because the stuff that I've found is that if you were to do, say, four and a half minutes a day, seven days a week, which is around 33 or four minutes, 
then you can get a 30 to 35 reduction in cardiovascular risk factors, which is significant, which is the same as if you were doing 75 to 150 minutes of, of vigorous exercise. So I think you've hit that right on the head. That's really good. You know, you've not overkilled it. Um, you know, that's evidence-based. It's good intensity. It's good recovery. You're not doing it every day of the week. So that's perfect. Stamp of approval for the Batman. I've got the yeah, big I'm giving it to you, mate. I love stamp it. over the top of it. <laughs> I love it. As I say, I always say, if I don't go home every day with something that I didn't know, that I haven't had a good day, you know, you got to learn something new. Every well, I did. Day. I wanted to. I wanted to throw the, this at you. And there is rigor, and there is a lot of evidence. And we've even got a paper that Dr. Tom is overseeing on this. The science behind this. So, if anyone says, "Well, why is it six minutes, minute effective dose?" We can go to the research. But I did want to show you because, uh, yeah, I I love what you do. You've inspired me and got me started way back and I totally respect what you do and I, I did I wanted to throw it out and, and to challenge as well I like a bit of healthy conflict a bit of robust debate so if there's anything missing I wanted you to to shine the light on it yeah no absolutely well you know me Andrew I would <laughs> without any question but no I think you and Dr Tom have done a terrific job on it I really like the resistance training thing too because it's underplayed and when we're looking at healthcare one of the problems with healthcare is obviously sarcopenia and, you know, I retired and the people that I've retired with, their concept is, well, let's just put our feet up. I'm saying, well, no, this is the time when we should be doing more. We can't do much about ageing. We can delay some of those things. But the problem with ageing is inactivity and ageing. That's what kills us. So we can maintain levels of physical activity whilst we're still ageing. We age healthily. And resistance training is a key player in any kind of population healthcare, I think, anyway. And two days a week, I think, is great. And we need to build some muscle mass. Uh, and another area that I'm super interested in at the moment is sarcopenia is is the problem. We do resistance training with heavier I, weights. I'll just jump in because a lot of people may not know what sarcopenia is because we all know what osteoporosis is with a, with a, a thinning of the bone density. Sarcopenia is losing muscle mass and muscle wastage over time. I think it's as big a problem as osteoporosis, but it, it doesn't get any air play at all to the point that when I say it in a presentation I get a lot of people go, oh what's sarcopenia so sorry I just wanted to jump in Paul to explain what that is for people yeah perfect Andrew no absolutely and the sad part of it is sarcopenia starts in your 30s that's not something that just happens as you get older it's a progressive decline um, so we need that muscle mass just to hold our body together to be so much more healthier but there's an interesting sidelight to that is that one of the things that's now coming out, and uh, particularly in cancer research and University of Western Australia, uh, well, actually, it's Edith Cowan University, I can't remember the exact department, but they are leaders when it comes to oncology treatment with resistance training. And that, if they saw that and they knew you were building muscle mass, then as far as cancer prevention and cancer cure, they would give that the big tick of approval. But one of the reasons why is not just because of muscle mass, it's the release of myokines. And myocoins are the substances that are released from the contracting muscle that affect every single tissue in the body. For example, there's one myokine, or sometimes they're called cytokines. With COVID, they became popular as cytokines. Myokine is a molecule that's released from the muscle as it contracts. So if you remember what happens in muscle contraction, the only way that muscles can move is that there has to be calcium released into the small sarcomere of the muscle. Now, we think that sarcomere, uh, that's, Calcium is important because it acts on the actinomycin and forces the muscle to move, but it has a secondary effect. It causes the release of myokines. There are over 600 myokines in the body that are released from a contracting muscle. Now, the heavier the weight, the longer the program, the more the myokines, the greater concentration. 
For example, there's one myokine called an IL-6 or interleukin-6, and it's released by the immune system as a pro-inflammatory when you hurt yourself. But the most amazing thing is that in muscle contractions, it's released as an anti-inflammatory. Now, anti-inflammatory mechanisms are critical for health because as we get older, we put on more weight, we lose muscle mass, we become more inflamed, we get inflammaging. Now, how good would it be in your program, people are doing this resistance training activity, they're improving their muscle mass, and as an added bonus, they're releasing these amazing myokines. We only know about 60 or 70 of them, what they actually do. So it's a really interesting area of research, but it's a powerful, powerful area. So you guys hit that right on the head. You've hit the interval training on the head and the sleep metrics. You're doing good. I'm proud of you, Andrew. I'm proud that a student has done so well. Wow. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Thanks, Pop. <laughs> good, son. Good. Did you say inflammaging? I haven't heard you say that before. Inflammaging. Yeah, yeah. Inflammaging. inflammaging. I love it. Inflammaging. Like it? I do. Yeah, I do. It's inflammation when you age. Yeah. You, you want to get Dr. Paul Batman fired up. You talk about words that start with the letter M. Mitochondria. <laughs> wind him up. Oh, Myokines. Mitochondria. Wind him up. Now we can talk about muscle mass. Muscle mass. <laughs> then we talk about Mets. Everything oh, good Mets. in the world starts with an M. <laughs> it does. Well, sleep doesn't, but the sleep, well, the metric is an M. And yeah, for that, just to round out level two, because we always get asked, what about sleep? My Garmin says, my Whoop band says, my Aura. And we go, oh, okay, here we go. My goodness. Wearable tech, and we're going to do a podcast on wearable tech early next year. It's accurately inaccurate. They're getting better, but it, but it's not apples with apples. So rather than saying how much sleep, and we know that the, the myth that was purported way back in the 80s and 90s, everyone needs eight hours, it's bullshit. Some get six, some get eight, eight and a half, and most are in between, but it's deep sleep. So on that, we're saying 90 minutes of deep sleep. Now, what we've noticed, Paul, what Tom and I have noticed from working with literally hundreds and hundreds of people in our clinic, you get those level one physiology building blocks. Start walking 10,000 steps a day. Get 10 minutes of sunshine on a morning, on a bright day, 20 minutes when it's overcast. Do intermittent fasting twice a week for 16 to 18 hours. Cut back on alcohol four or five nights a week. Go AFDs. Get sauna exposure. And the utility on that comes from the Finns because we know Finnish men who sauna four times a week live 10 years longer than those that don't. So that's phase one. Then lift heavy shit once or twice a week. And if it's only once, make sure you do a circuit. Run once or twice a week, get six minutes, minimum effective dose at 85%. Guess what happens? You sleep better. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Can't be much better than that. Now, we could talk about this for ages. Oh, I want to get you back on early next year because I know you're doing some groundbreaking work. I won't mention who it's with and the partnerships you're doing, but you're really looking at exercise specifics as people age. I love what you were telling me before we press play. So can we get you back early next year and we'll, we'll, we'll go deep on that as well? Absolutely, Andrew. It'd be a great pleasure to be back with you, mate. Well, especially when, when you agree on our research. Jeez, that's, a, that's like, the this is best good. No, bit this of my is day. You, you guys have done your homework and I give you a big tick. Awesome. Thanks, Pop. Hey, those people <laughs> that want to follow you, connect you to see the great info, because you put out research and you put out a lot of thought pieces. So where do people find you? Oh, just on LinkedIn, it's as good as any, Andrew. Uh, so just, yeah, just look for Dr. Paul Batman on LinkedIn. Um, just have a look. There's probably about 30 or 40 different articles that are there on LinkedIn. I try and every Tuesday, I try and put up a post on something. Uh, one interesting one I'll just leave you with. One of the things I'm interested in, as I said before, is that you don't have to have the highest VO2 max to be the healthiest. You only need to improve one met. 
Now, one met is improving 3.5 mils of voltage at the kilogram body weight. And by doing one met, you can reduce your risk factors, cardiovascular risk factors between 20 and 30%. Uh, one figure that blew me away recently was that you can save, or we can save, the government can save $1,600 in healthcare costs per MET increase. How good's that? Wow. You only have to get one MET. Now, if you can continue to improve those METs, then you decrease your risk factors, but you don't have to have a VO2 max of a marathon runner. But that sort of stuff's up there, and uh, that's my that's my bent at the moment. I love talking about METs, and uh, as I say, minimum dose. Minimum dose. Mitochondria, it will always be close to my heart, Andrew. Myocones. We need to get you to go and talk to Medicare. See what I did there? Yeah, absolutely. Why don't I talk to anyone? Starts starts with an M. Hey, mate. Um, it does. It's got to be good. <laughs> thank, thank you, Heaps. I'm really looking All forward right, to listening back to this. And we'll definitely get you back in the studio early next year. So, Dr. Paul Fantastic, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure, mate. Bye-bye.